Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. When you think of the Industrial Revolution, what comes to mind? Steam engines, probably. Lone genius inventors. Factories and coal mines, perhaps. And depending on your professional interests and political leanings, either suffering laborers in sweatshops or the great onward march of civilization. Did anybody think of guns? According to my guest today, Stanford historian Priya Satya, guns are inextricably bound up with industrialization, and it is our long and ever-changing relationship with these tools, toys, trade goods, status symbols, and instruments of war that makes them such a persistent fact of life to this day. Priya Satya's latest book is Empire of Guns, The Violent Making of the Industrial Revolution. Welcome to Think Again. Thank you. Happy to be here. We can really start anywhere in this long and fraught history, but maybe let's start in the present day. I want to say that growing up in America, for me, guns were a thing that, you know, you basically assumed the military and the police should have. During the 80s, the issue became more about gun violence in the inner cities, and now school shootings are essentially a commonplace thing. Starting from there, where can we go to understand what's happening right now in American culture? I think your impression is actually reflects an empirical reality. I don't think the idea of widespread ownership of multiple guns throughout the population was the American relationship with guns until around the 1980s and thereafter. It is a recent development. I think until around that time, right. the idea that gun ownership should be regulated was pretty much taken for granted. Every Supreme Court ruling about this before endorsed that view. And there's been a kind of dramatic shift more recently and a much more expansive interpretation of the Second Amendment that it entitles everyone to individual ownership of guns for their personal defense, for whatever reason, any type of gun that can be classified as a firearm. The American civilian market is the most single most important market for guns in the world. And as gun controls have tightened around the world, it, it has become more and more important. And so there are a lot of people with a vested interest in promoting that very expansive interpretation of the Second Amendment and ensuring that we don't have tight controls in this country that would be really damaging to firearms makers around the world. And I think the NRA in particular has been really effective in representing those interests and ensuring that we have this really inaccurate, new, expansive understanding of the Second Amendment that guides our sense of whether we should have controls or not. PR and propaganda and sort of political mes messaging have trickled down and become kind of bedrock culture for a lot of people in America who will argue until they're blue in the face that this is a fundamental right, this is extremely important, you know, the idea of any kind of gun regulation whatsoever, like how dare you suggest I shouldn't have an AR-15 that can shoot however many rounds per second is absolutely insane. Yes, I think it's gotten to that point. And it's based, you know, on claims about history that just are not borne out by the evidence that historians have collected. There have always been regulations on gun ownership in the United States. 
guns are uh, were an right. important part right. of of the early history of the you know of the you know foundation of the colonies and the creation of the United States of America, and that that's true. But th- there were always also gun control laws in Kentucky, and you know as in part of the opening of the of the West, guns were there, but so were gun controls. When it comes to the culture at large, historians have a tough battle, I guess, to fight against clever PR messaging and giant organizations like the NRA to educate people about this sort of thing. This is not an easy fight. Yeah, I think historians are trying to find ways to intervene helpfully in our public debate to make sure we're working from the right information as we figure out how to move forward on gun controls. And it's not, I mean, historians have... So I'm going to say something a little bit critical about my profession. But I think in in recent decades, we've sort of ceded a lot of the kind of ground of expertise in public debates to more social scientific kind of experts. And so, you know, like economists and political scientists or legal scholars, people like sociologists. And I think there is this kind of realization that we know things that those kinds of experts don't know and can't weigh in on. And how can we make that information available and accessible to everyone who's participating in this debate? Historically, what was the major divergence between like sociology and history? Were historians not using the kinds of statistical tools to, you know, or was it simply a matter of knowing about the past versus knowing about the present? Yeah, I know. I definitely, there's a huge role for sociologists to play to tell us, you know, how we use guns. And in a sense, what historians can do is be, you know, sociologists of the past, sort of, you know, put on an anthropological hat and look at what were the customs around gun use in the time of the Second Amendment or in the 19th century, so that when erroneous claims are made about the place of guns in the story of America, we can correct that record. Insofar as this debate is has been framed as a debate about history in the past, there's a role specifically for historians. And uh, as much as we need the sociological inf- data and that expertise too, we need historians to weigh in. Let's take it now to the, the history that you talk about in the book. And there's a central family, the Galton family, which who are gun manufacturers in England. And there's kind of a paradox at the heart of their story, the fact that they are Quakers and yet they are also gun makers. Yeah, um, the Galton family sort of pulled me into the whole subject, into the subject of the Industrial Revolution. I had set out to write a book about the history of arms trading. And without thinking it would have it would have anything to say about the Industrial Revolution in particular. But then when I was looking at the 18th century sort of beginnings of that story, I found that the single biggest gun-making firm in that period was owned by this Quaker family. So they, they're important because they were the single biggest one. And then, you know, even more intriguingly, the fact that they were Quakers, right. that was very fascinating to me. I should clarify for the listeners that, you know, the Quakers are a pacifist sect of Christianity. They were some of the first abolitionists in America. And in Britain as well. So I felt like either I've misunderstood Quakers or I've misunderstood gun making. I mean, there's something uh, there that, that, because the interesting thing was that this family was in the gun making business for almost a century without attracting any critical comment within the Quaker community where they lived 
in Birmingham and the West Midlands, and even in, in Britain right. more generally. And then suddenly in the 1790s, they are criticized. So something changed, right? And that was kind of a mystery to me. Why were they never criticized? And then why were they suddenly criticized when they were? What what had changed about being a Quaker or making guns or or that moment in general? And when I looked at how right. the, the head of the family responded to this criticism in the 1790s, and he printed his defense for posterity. So it was like this hand reaching out to me saying, write about me. <laughs> and what he said in that defense was what made me think, okay, there might be a whole new narrative here about the Industrial Revolution. And I sort of shifted my focus and sat down to write about the Industrial Revolution. And what he said was that, yes, I'm making guns, but I can't think of anything else that I could make as a productive economic actor, you know, in the Midlands, in this moment, that would not also in some way contribute to war. Our whole economy, he was saying, is driven by war. And that's not something that historians have typically said about industrialism in Britain in this period. And it was, it was worth sort of testing the truth of that. That's a really interesting defense. Not that I'm not supporting violence, but we are all complicit. And so basically, if you want to do anything at all, you have no choice but to be complicit. Yeah. I mean, he did try to sort of have it both ways. And then on the one hand, he, he said what you just said, that we're all complicit, we're all participating in violence. But he also, the second ha set of arguments he made was around, you know, what guns were. And yes, they can be used uh, in violence, but... They also have these other defensive purposes. They can reduce the amount of violence we have. Um, they are civilizing. And so I also set out to test the truth of that, those claims by looking at how British people actually used guns in this period, both in civilian and military capacities. That is a really interesting aspect of the book. Going back to what I was saying in the beginning, that Aside from, you know, a sort of vague notion as a kid that the police and the military should have guns, of course, because they have to. The idea of if I really thought about a gun, it's clearly an instrument of violence. It's for killing people. That's what it's for. But what you're talking about is, an, you know, all kinds of evolving symbolic meanings for guns in different times and places. Yeah, so the first thing to keep in mind when we're looking at the history of how guns were used is that what we call a gun today is really different from what someone in the 18th century would look at and call a gun. I mean, their guns were really different. They were perishable. The ones that were sent to Africa often didn't last more than a year. Um, they were really unreliable. They were really unwieldy to use. They were not a good weapon to turn to if you were angry or upset in, you know, in a moment of fury, right? you would not reach for a gun. We would reach for a gun in a moment of fury, right? So we use them differently because they work differently. So they were a very important commodity in the slave trade in the West Coast of Africa. Right. And Britain, but many other European powers as well, were, you know, they were, they were all trading guns in exchange for slaves. And their uses in Africa have been studied by a lot of historians who are trying to figure out how they mattered in African warfare and what they did to political systems in Africa, how they mattered even in, in the slave trade, in the procurement of slaves in Africa. And I sort of took a leaf from that right. book and tried to put on an anthropological hat and do the same thing with the British and look at how were they using guns. 
And there's some overlaps, you know, between the way West Africans used guns and the way the British used guns. For instance, in both cases, they are a kind of currency that's used for procurement of other commodities. Because an important aspect of currency is standardization, the fact that, you know, a penny is a penny or a dollar is a dollar or whatever. In some cases, it actually was beneficial for people preferred older guns because they recognized the model rather than innovations that maybe made them less universal as currency, less recognizable. In the West African market in particular, there is this phenomenon that as gun technology was improving and better and better guns were being sold in maybe other parts of the world, in West Africa, you still see the same type of not very sophisticated or precise type of gun being sold. And the question is, were, were the British just dumping bad guns in Africa? And that is partly true. Right. That is true. But at the same time, the Africans were also demanding that particular kind of gun because it was something I think that shows that they weren't just using the gun for its violent capacity, but they were using it as a standardized currency. It was something that could be used to procure right. other things. And if it kept changing because the technology was improving, it wouldn't work that way. It would sabotage its function. I mean, obviously, those guns, even if they were unreliable or short-lived, could, under some circumstances, kill somebody. But I mean, the fundamental value of the thing, if they are mostly unreliable and not that effective as weapons of uh, death, the value is what? Just the fact that they they represent technological progress, that they're expensive to get in the first place. What gives them their cachet as currency in that case? There are a few different things. One is that they have intrinsic value as metal objects. This is a period of currency shortage in Britain and, and in West Africa. You can't use British money, right, to, to, to buy anything. But right. all I mean, globally, the understanding of currency was that it has value because of its intrinsic metal content. And obviously gold and silver are the best, right. but there are iron also has value and would be something, um, you know, stolen in a robbery. And so would copper and there are other metals that have that kind of value. So that's one thing. And the second thing is that they're miniaturized cannon, right? That's what a firearm is in the 18th century. And so they have a lot of symbolic value that way and what they represent politically. Um, if you have one or you have many um, and you display them, that says something about you, wherever you are, really. Right. And thirdly, um, sometimes, I mean, they, a lot of people, I don't want to say that there were no gun casualties. I mean, a lot of people died from guns, but often it was <laughs> not the result of right. like marksmanship or good targeting or, in you know, I want to kill you because I'm upset with you and I will aim and it will hit you and we all know what's going to happen. It, they were so unreliable right. that often the value lay in the fact that they were unreliable, that you you never knew what would happen if someone fired a gun, and that was terrifying and terrorizing. And so if you had that power oh, interesting. to terrorize uh, the people around you, that could give you uh, a lot of confidence, um, you know, which is useful in many different political and commercial purposes. You know, it was a very effective deterrent in, in many different ways. I That's especially fascinating because I've I just recently learned something from game theory, which is that, you know, when you're backed into a corner, when you're in a zero-sum mm -hmm. game, one effective strategy is 
doing random things that makes it make it impossible for the other side to predict what you're going to do next, just sort of disrupt the game with chaos. And in a sense, it seems like that's what that's one aspect of what gun, those guns were doing. Yeah, even Adam Smith said their real value in battle was the noise and smoke that they produced, which created a situation of terror where you didn't know, you couldn't mm. see well, you didn't know what was coming at you from where, and that's how they helped in battle. Maybe we can talk a bit about how guns and gun production and sort of the relationship between the British government and gun manufacturing drives the industrial revolution. In what sense is it really an engine or the main engine? Yeah. Um, so I think the argument that I make is that military purchasing, you know, the government buying things in bulk that it needs to fight all the wars that it's involved in in the 18th century, that that was a really important factor in driving a lot of industrialism in Britain. And that firearms are one place where you can really, really see the dramatic effect of military purchasing on that industry and the industries that it sort of has ripple effects onto. Uh, but I think if you look even okay. more broadly, you can see how military purchasing had a really wide effect all over the British economy. It was useful for Britain to be the producer of guns and to be the main one, you know, selling and distributing them to other people, even if potentially those other people might join in some kind of uprising against them, rather than encouraging or allowing any gun manufacturer in, in colonies or around the world. Yeah, for sure. Um, within Britain, there was uh, a lot of care was taken to ensure that potential rebels um, against the government did not have access to arms. Um, so particularly in areas that were perceived as vulnerable and secure, like Scotland and Ireland, um, there was a very there was very strict disarmament for most of the 18th century. But everywhere else in the colonies, uh, in the right. areas that Britain is expanding um, in this period, there's sometimes concerns are voiced that, wait a minute, are we arming people who might use our own arms against us? in a future clash. Right. And whenever that objection was raised or the concern was raised, it would always be allayed with the idea that, well, yes, that's a risk, but if we don't send, sell guns to even our potential enemies, <laughs> then some rival of ours will do that, like the French or the Dutch, and then we will lose both the profit of those sales and the prestige or the diplomatic gains that come with being the provider of those guns to different powers in you know, North America or South Asia or wh wherever. How does that argument sit with you? What do you mean? Like, how do I judge it? Yeah, I mean, do you feel that the, do you feel that that's just like a purely an argument from self-interest in the sense of profiteering? Or do you think that that was like strategically the move that should have been made? I mean, I think it is an argument that recurs throughout the modern period. Arms manufacturers always make this argument. <laughs> Governments who are selling arms, like you know, the United States government, makes that argument. And I, I understand the logic of it, 
But the British, right. the British even, they finally do second guess that logic. By the late 19th century, they're scrambling to control arms sales around, you know, to colonies and stuff because they are really worried about the fact that they're now increasingly influential and popular anti-colonial movements and that and guns have improved technologically in a manner that uh, right. suggests maybe a single anti-colonial rebel armed with a pistol could could kill someone and that's you know the world the first world war started with the you know a member of the serbian black hand going in and assassinating right. the archduke of the habsburg empire with a pistol. And and that was a really eye-opening moment for the British too. And they thought, well, as one of the officials said, any fool with a gun can assassinate a prince. And that that became suddenly right. belatedly a scary scenario. But there's always this tension because then, you know, when they try and control gun sales and the gun industry starts lobbying and complaining and saying, well, this is not good for us and we're important to the nation and our survival is important to British national security. And what eventually resolves that dilemma is that the British gun industry dies out and Britain itself starts buying a lot of guns, whatever it needs for its armies and law enforcement agencies or whatever from from makers in other countries. They don't need right. their own homegrown industry anymore by the late 20th century. And that's how they're able to resolve strict gun control with a continued ability to procure guns for government agencies when they need them. And the United States is the one place that can't do that now. Because we are the major manufacturers and suppliers of guns worldwide. Yeah, all the governments depend on American civilians continuing to be able to buy guns for the sake of the general health of gun makers around the world, wherever they are. I don't think I actually answered your question about what I think about that logic. I mean, the alternative to a mutually terrorized world, right, where everyone, every right. nation state has arms um, and we're all and everyone is selling because if you don't sell, someone else would sell. It's a, it's a kind of game theory problem, like, you know, to go back to what you were saying earlier. If the other alternative would be a mutually disarmed world, it's a coordination problem where everyone agreed not to have arms. And I mean, that's utopian, right. but it's the better solution. It's funny you should mention that because in non-zero-sum contests, uh, well, you know, I say I think where both sides agree on a kind of win-win sol solution, in this case disarmament, let's say, the problem is often trust mm -hmm. and verification. Like how do you yeah. how do you create conditions where you can be sure that that's actually what's happening? And like we've seen again and again with North Korea and Pakistan and all around the world that that's really difficult in these conversations. Yes, you were saying that everyone needs to be a good faith actor basically in in solving that coordination problem. And what it makes me think of is sort of the, the latest, I mean, if there was enough so we've had regulation of every kind of weapon system that exists. From the late right. 19th century, there have been efforts to do that. And we've so we have some kind of regulations about for the sale and exchange of just about every kind of weapon system that exists, except for firearms. And what started to happen um, in the 21st century is that there's been a lot of activism around having more regulation of firearm sales. And there's a UN... Uh, arms Trade Treaty of 2014 uh, that included firearms as one of the elements to now be regulated. But um, the United States won't ratify that, right, because of this 
NRA concern that if we even regulate exports and you know agree to comply with a international effort like that, that we will somehow be compromising our ability for Americans to all own arms per that expansive interpretation of the Second Amendment. So not 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 good faith actors. <laughs> The NRA is a big problem, but I do think that they are enabled by our government and all governments, right? All governments have an interest in the NRA doing what it's doing. And that, that's why we don't see change. I think this is a good place for us to shift to the second half of the show where we're going to watch, uh, sure. and I'm saying this for the audience's benefit as much as yours, we're going to watch two surprise short clips from Big Things archives that neither Priya nor I have seen before, and they're going to be on subjects that may or may not be adjacent to this, but that we will almost certainly have some things to say about, I hope. <laughs> almost certainly, okay. I hope. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The first one is Max Tegmark, author and physicist. And the clip is called, We're smart enough to create intelligent machines, but are we wise enough? I'm optimistic that we can create an awesome future with technology. As long as we win the race between the growing power of the tech and the growing wisdom with which we manage the tech. And uh, this is actually getting harder because of nerdy technical developments in the AI field. It used to be when we wrote state-of-the-art AI, like for example, IBM's Deep Blue computer who defeated Garry Kasparov in chess a couple of decades ago, that all the intelligence was basically programmed in by humans who knew how to play chess. And then the computer won the game just because they could think faster and remember more. But we understood this software well. Understanding what, what your AI system does is one of those pieces of wisdom you have to have to be able to really trust it. The reason we have so many problems today with systems getting hacked or crashing because of bugs is exactly because we didn't understand the systems as well as we should have. And now what's happening is fascinating. Today's biggest AI breakthroughs are of a completely different kind, where rather than the intelligence being largely programmed in and easy to understand code, you put in almost nothing except a little learning rule by which a simulated network of neurons can take a lot of data and figure out how to get stuff done. And this deep learning suddenly becomes able to do things often even better than the programmers were ever able to do. You can train a machine to play computer games with almost no hard-coded stuff at all. You don't tell it what a game is, what a... What a the things are on the screen or that there even is such a thing as a screen. You just feed in a bunch of data about the colors of the pixels and tell it, hey, go ahead and maximize that number in the upper left corner. And gradually you come back and it's playing some game much better than I could. The challenge with this, even though it's very powerful, is it's very much a black box now where, yeah, it does all that great stuff and we don't understand how. So suppose I get sentenced to 10 years in prison by a robo-judge in the future. And I ask why, and I'm told, 
I was trained on seven terabytes of data, and this is the decision. It's not that satisfying for me, right? Or suppose the machine that's in charge of our electric power grid now suddenly malfunctions, and someone says, well, we have no idea why. We trained it on a lot of data, and it worked. And that doesn't instill the kind of trust that we want to put into systems. You know, when you get the blue screen of death, when your Windows machine crashes or the spinning wheel of doom because your Mac crashes. Annoying is probably the main emotion we have, right? But annoying isn't the emotion I would have if it's my self-flying airplane that crashes or the software controlling the nuclear arsenal of the US or something like that. And as AI gets more and more out into the world, we absolutely need to uh, transform today's hackable and buggy AI systems into AI systems that we can really trust. So historians aren't, I guess, typically in the business of speculating about the future too much, or <laughs> maybe some of you are. Yuval Noah Harari is. But let's find a way in. What, what catches your attention here? Well, there are a couple of things. One is, uh, I think he does a great job identifying the problem, potential problems with AI, but I was kind of surprised at his conclusion, which is that the solution is to is not to question the direction of, you know, whether we should have more AI, but to find a way to make to reform the way we're creating AI so that it becomes more trustworthy. And I think I don't think everyone has yet agreed that we all want a world that's so suffused with artificial intelligence. I didn't know we'd all signed up for that yet. <laughs> seems like one of those things we didn't all sign up for a world, you know, so mediated by the internet, but once the internet was here, we're all on it. I mean, that is to say, I don't know that the direction of where this goes is totally inevitable, but I guess one thing I was thinking about was these learning algorithms are enabling AI to be much smarter than I think it could be when programmers were having to put in every single piece of information and creating a transparent system where you could understand exactly what was going on. So I'm not, I don't know that you can have your cake and eat it too. I'm not sure you can have this sort of like exponential increasing quote unquote intelligence and at the same time, the ability to walk logically backwards and say, explain why, have the machine explain why it's doing something. Yeah, I, th I think technological development, if you look at it historically, it kind of has its own dynamic. I mean, so, you know, even when it comes to weapons technology, President Eisenhower, you know, named, called out that there's this military industrial complex, right, in the Cold War. But when the Cold War ended right. in 1989, the military industrial complex didn't go away because there's so many people invested in it. And it had a logic and dynamic of its own that didn't have much to do with right. particular security purposes and then found new purpose with the war on terror, right? Um, and these what we call civilian spin-offs, right? Um, the inter including the internet okay. and much of, much of Silicon Valley. Right. But the artificial intelligence, I don't know, in the, lately in the papers, there's been a lot of discussion that kind of reminds me of the whole discussion that Galton was engaged in. Because Google, like Quakers in their time, Google made a commitment to not be evil, right? And now right. that now that it's been made public that Google uh, is participating in these Pentagon programs to develop artificial intelligence capacities that may be used in 
drone style warfare or other kinds of warfare, there's this huge internal debate within Google and also with its partner firms or uh, like Deep Minds in London, um, which is one of the most important AI companies in the world, who signed on with Google on the understanding that their work would never be used in any kind of war-related purpose. So now what? Right. right? What we're coming right. up against is this fact that government contracts have always been and remain really, really important to technological development and the the kind of economic prosperity that comes out of technological innovation. And that's you know where we're at with AI. And there's so many ethical dilemmas that come with that uh, for people who work on it and for what it's going to do to everyone's life. So, it, you know, I, I don't think it's a, a question between like no technological innovation or government funded military driven technological innovation. That seems like a false dichotomy if anyone would suggest that. No, I agree with you. You know, military purchasing was what was important in the 18th century, but it could be other kinds of purchasing and other kinds of government-driven right. uh, investment could help drive technological change, too. It doesn't all have to be war-related. But in the current political climate, it just it happens to be that, once again, um, the interest is the money is coming from security or defense, whatever euphemism you want to use. It's not like social services. Yeah. <laughs> it's not social spending. Uh, you know, whenever I look at history, you know, as a non-historian, I feel like there's always this tendency because sort of historical forces seem to have this, you know, and, and do have powerful momentum. There's that there's always this tension between sort of what change is possible and what is inevitable. And so it's very easy yeah. to like, you know, in moral situations to end up saying, oh, well, the genie's out of the bottle and everything is guns and that's what it is. I do think genies have been put back in the bottle before. You know, we've done that with landmines, for instance, and we do regulate uh, the way we use lots of technologies that first, you know, arrived on the scene. You know, when cars were first invented, we had no traffic laws. <laughs> we, we had to make those up. Right, 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 right. We, right. we had to, we didn't have like a right. car car amendment to rely on, right? We we made up new a whole new set of, a whole new area of law emerged to deal with the fact that we had a new technology. And so we can do that. Sometimes you can put the genie back in the bottle and sometimes you can keep it out, but really, really keep a sharp eye on it so it's not running rampant and uh, creating chaos. Yeah, nothing is, nothing is, nothing is, decided already, right? On the small scale car example, my Turkish father-in-law still won't wear a seatbelt because this is not something that they did until recently. No, I was just going to say my grandma never wore a seatbelt either. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> <laughs> this is a good spot, I think, to go to the second of our two clips. So this one is Alice Drager, historian, sex researcher, and writer, and it's a short history of knowledge from feudalism to the internet. So this should be interesting. Peer review is not a simple thing because humans do it. And so whenever there's humans, there will be bias introduced 
uh, relationships get complicated with regard to peer review. We have a fantasy that peer review will be totally anonymous on both ends. You won't know who the person you're reviewing is, and they won't know who you are, and it will all be blind. But in reality, people figure out <laughs> in peer review who is who, and um, biases do get introduced. But that said, the ideal of peer, peer review is a really important one, and we can sort of approach it. And that's the idea that we have people who are qualified judging each other's work. It allows us to essentially crowdsource knowledge and to have an opportunity where blind spots are picked off, where errors are picked up, and where we can make work better. So it's a, essentially a way to crowdsource knowledge. I want to point out, by the way, that peer review is historically really interesting. It came out of the Enlightenment period. So this was the period when thinkers were beginning to really appreciate the idea that humans together could know more. And what's fascinating is that democracy and science grew up together, and they both use peer review. So science uses peer review because scientific ideas are put forth and then scientists who are qualified to do so judge that work. And in democracy, peer review is used in things like voting systems. So when we do voting, that's a peer review form. When we do uh, judging of criminal or non-criminal acts in courts, that's a form of peer review when we have a jury. And so it's not a coincidence because what was happening was the thinkers of the Enlightenment were beginning to figure out that more people looking at a problem could get you better knowledge. Before the Enlightenment, the concept was knowledge came from above. It came from the church, from the state, from God. It came from an external higher authority. But the real revelation of the Enlightenment was the idea that people could do this themselves. They didn't have to rely on the church, the state, uh, God, an external authority. They could do it themselves. And so they began to have the idea that they would reject the king, and they would essentially reject the teachings of the church, and they would reject the state being run by the king, that they would take back control of knowledge. And that was true in democracy and in science. So it's no coincidence that a lot of the founding fathers were science geeks. They were thinking about crowdsourcing. It's what we call crowdsourcing. There are more checks and balances on bad knowledge going forward. So there's accountability at some level, right? When you're doing peer review, the editor at least knows who you are. When you're doing voting, theoretically, you're not allowed to vote more than once. When you're on a jury, you've got a judge keeping track of whether or not information should be admissible in court, whether it's fair to admit it in court. The internet is uh, crowdsourcing gone wild. It has no limits on it. And so you can have things like bots like things until it actually is noticed by real human beings. You can have situations where something looks incredibly real, but it's not real, and it will take off much faster than we can stop it. So the internet really is a beautiful thing in many ways. It allows people to find each other who never could have found each other before. For example, people with very unusual medical conditions can find each other. People with very unusual interests can find each other. The problem is that you have a situation where there are no checks and balances. And so you get a phenomenon whereby things that are not real can go forward. But there are some places on the internet where there are checks and balances. So Wikipedia is a great example, actually. Wikipedia actually has people who function as editors, and they will uh, talk to each other, fight with each other, and all the discussions get externalized. That allows a level of accountability that much, much of the internet doesn't have. It's also the case that Wikipedia paid editors can actually stop people from editing in some circumstances or stop people from messing with pages. So there are places on the internet that have been born of crowdsourcing, but that do have some checks and balances built in. Also, before I forget, I wanted to add something about putting the genie back in the bottle. 
where there is political will, the genie can be put back into the bottle. And uh, for instance, there was an abolition of the slave trade, even at the height of its profitability in Britain, uh, because there was right. sufficient political right. will. And even when it comes to firearms, um, you know, Japan famously, Tokugawa Japan famously put that genie back in the bottle and, and removed guns from Japanese society for two centuries. And even in Britain now, I mean, there are virtu- very, very few guns around. So, the, I mean, I was saying earlier that those are the, that's the structural set of reasons that makes the American civilian market so important. But I don't think that means that it's yeah. impossible to find a way to even put the genie back in the bottle here. I just wanted to say that. All right. So on the profession and peer <laughs> review, right? History is has historically been a male-dominated profession, like <laughs> like most professions. But in recent years, it has become more and more diversified. That does vary sometimes by field and by department. But there are decent right. numbers of women, at least uh, in the field. There was this all-male conference at the Hoover Institute at Stanford earlier this year. Right. The reason that was so uh, newsworthy was because it was so out of step with the general demographics of the profession. It, it stuck out. So as I said at that time, there it, we often have the problem of, you know, panels that are made up of only men, like, you know, three men or something like that. But an entire conference of 30 people is is unheard of. Let's talk about it maybe in the context of the way the industrial revolution has been understood historically versus the way that you're understanding it in this book and what that might have to do with sure. the traditionally male character of the profession. Yeah. You know, what sociological research shows is that when knowledge is produced by a more diverse group, it improves as you include more and more different kinds of people. So in the video, they were talking about the Enlightenment period, and that was, of course, a period of you know white men talking to one another, and they did produce a great deal of knowledge. <laughs> but right. I think as we're going over some of the same questions, same questions that were asked then, and we're still trying to understand them in many ways, questions about the human condition, questions about the past, you know, philosophical questions. The more we have women and people of different kinds of racial, cultural backgrounds, the better our, our knowledge becomes. And, you know, without being too self-congratulatory, I do, I do think that the fact that I am a South Asian American woman has maybe had something to do with the fact that I approached the industrial, or I was willing to approach the industrial revolution differently, because I think um, my interest in it came out of a, a long curiosity since I was a student about, you know, why these two homes I have, or the three homes I have in some sense, the U.S. and India and, and the U.K., to the extent that it's a place that I've also lived, why there's such inequality and why there's certain things that are similar. But I mean, I've always been curious about that. And I think my approach to the Industrial Revolution was certainly shaped by that. And so one of the things that comes out in my book is that there were these knowledge networks, uh, you know, in terms of sharing military technology, but the British officials were so careful to cut those networks off uh, and make sure Indians were not allowed to join them, right? And that really affected the extent to which India could industrialize because the British were actively trying to suppress those knowledge networks, even existing Indian knowledge networks relating to firearms manufacturing. But, you know, you can see how 
in the last century or so where people have been writing about the Industrial Revolution itself, um, that's been a, a pretty closed group. And many of the greatest, the most recent sort of innovations in thinking about the Industrial Revolution have come from women like Maxine Berg and Pat Hudson and people like that. Is it fair to say that there are sort of two broad narratives of the Industrial Revolution, one being a kind of Marxist critique or post-Marxist critique, and the other being a kind of heroic narrative of genius and progress? Yes, I, th I think, I don't think there has been any branch that has made the argument that the government had a big role in the Industrial Revolution. So that kind of Marxist critique has been about mm. whether the Industrial Revolution was good for ordinary people or not. But I don't think they ever really questioned right. whether it was driven by the state. But I think the idea of heroic entrepreneurship has been really, really influential. And people like to even think about innovation today in that way. Elon Musk and, oh, yeah. uh, you know. You're in Silicon Valley yeah. and the whole narrative coming out of there. I mean, we're starting to see, it's interesting because we are starting to see some some kind of internal critical backlash within Silicon Valley, whereas people are like, wait, are we really making the world a better place? What exactly would that entail? You know, I don't know if we'll see a sort of a significant ideological revolution, but there's certainly been plenty boosterism. And this gets back to, you know, the question of putting the genie back in the bottle is that once you realize that some of the products you sell, there are ethical dilemmas around them, how, how do you put the genie back in the bottle or regulate them? And the people who have a vested interest or who are benefiting from them don't want to deal with them until the point where they are simply undeniably bad and where there is a somewhat a unequivocal situation like, okay, kids are spraying kids with bullets in schools. And, you know, that, that tipping point when the stakes for doing the right thing, I, I mean, obviously I'm making a moral judgment there, are, are, are clear. That's really interesting. That's what the historians want to know. Like, okay, there was an abolition movement. The arguments for abolition existed right. for a long time, but why does it only work in 1807? when slave trading was still was still profitable in Britain. And I think it was a moment at which the potential profit of being good, you know, of having the moral capital of having been the first country to abolish the slave trade, the potential benefits for that were so high in that moment. Coming off of the loss against uh, the Americans, pushing back against the French claim to being the defenders of liberty, now the British need to find a way to reclaim that status as the defenders of liberty, and abolition allows them to do that. It's self-interest and power, basically. I don't think it comes out of a totally cynical place, especially given the kind of people who were involved in it. Right, Christopher right. Leslie Brown at Columbia has made this argument that it was about creating moral capital, that that kind of capital had that kind of value in that moment. And it wasn't as needed maybe in, in right. 1770, but it, after 1783, it becomes really, really important. It's about redemption, right? And redemption, redemption is a really powerful right. motivator. So maybe there will be a moment when the U.S. will need redemption from, from these what we're doing to our children and, and we'll have change. Priya Satya, thank you so much for coming on Think Again today. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you. It was fun for me, too. And that wraps up this week's episode of Think Again. I try to keep the 
programming unpredictable. We try to bounce around between very different subjects, very different people. Lately, we've had a string of pretty intense real-world topics. Um, and soon things are going to sort of lighten and liven up again with a couple of shows about music. If you are listening to this show and enjoying it, um, I would love to hear from you. Feel free to write me at jason at bigthink.com. You can tell me anything you like, how you listen, why you listen, what the show means to you, a response to an idea that you heard, anything at all. Uh, feel free to write me. I'd love to hear it. And if you're willing to have me potentially share your message on the show, um, let me know that. I'll be back next week with something completely different. Hope you can join us.